Well, good morning again. It's good to see everyone here this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, please open that to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. We made it. Galatians chapter 4. When you came here this morning, were you thinking, boy, I can't wait for that trumpet to sound? And if you weren't, which we, most of us probably weren't because we were too concerned about getting ready and dressed and getting here without pulling our hair out, um, the songs have reminded us, amen? The, the, the worship through lyric and melody and harmony has reminded us that our great longing is for that trumpet to sound. And to be with Christ. Amen. Galatians 4, chapter 1, and for this morning we'll read verse through verse 7. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, guess what? Then an heir through God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, for the clarity of it and for the Spirit's guidance in giving us and granting us understanding so that we might know you more fully, so that we might experience you more fully, so that we might know your will for our life, so that we might know that Jesus Christ is our hope and the only offer of salvation is in him. We thank you for your recorded, inerrant, infallible word. And we pray, Lord, that you would grant us understanding that the Holy Spirit would lay conviction convincing upon our heart and that we would be changed this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul has called, as in chapter 3, what we've seen is Paul has called those who put their faith in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, both Jew and Gentile alike, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ are heirs of the promise. A promise that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 where God sweeps into the scene of the fall and promises salvation from the seed of the woman. A promise of one who would bring blessings. A promise of one who would bring blessings that he brings in a new covenant a new covenant that brings blessings to the nations, to all nations, to all people of all nations, a new covenant 
that provides for us, that provides for us and accomplishes for us what we could not do on our own. A new covenant that one enters by faith in Jesus. And so Paul, convincing, arguing in love and graciousness and compassion to the Galatians that they would not leave the beauty of Jesus Christ and the beauty of the gospel continues here in chapter 4 to give us a different window to look at this. To give more clarity to the beauty of the gospel that he preached to the Galatians. And I want us to look at verse 1 and 2 because Paul gives us here an illustration for the purpose of understanding in greater ways what they're being tempted to do. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, this is, this is a human example that Paul's giving, and he's going to tell us why he's giving this human example in the next couple of verses. But I just want to make sure that we're clear of what Paul is saying and meaning here. What he means here is when a young father dies... His minor child, a child that is underage, he'll have to wait to take hold of that inheritance until he is of age. Though the child is actually legally the heir, right? He's the oldest son, let's say, of the family, and the the dad dies at a young age in battle, maybe, But the son's going to have to wait. Even though he owns everything that the dad did, he's going to have to wait. Because with respect to taking possession of and exercising control over the estate that has been left to him, he is no better off than a slave of the house. He doesn't have the liberty and the freedom to exercise oversight and management of all the things that he's actually owner of because he's not yet of age. And for the time being, this child is under guardians to whose care he has been personally entrusted. He has to do what they say, even though he owns the slaves, according to the context here. He's under stewards who... in Biblical times were often slaves of the household. He's under them to whom the oversight of his estate has been committed. So Paul gives us this illustration, and then he's going to explain it. Before I explain how they correlate, I want us to look at verse 3 and 4, and I want to break down what Paul is saying here, and then I'll summarize the illustration, the meaning of the illustration that Paul is using here. First, I want to explain what's being said. In verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, Paul's been talking a lot about being in bondage and being um, under the curse, right? And that's what I believe Paul means here when he says we were 
We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Well, maybe your Bible says rudiment, right? Depending on your translation. But these elementary principles of the world are elementary teachings regarding rules and regulations by which both Jews and Gentiles, each in their own way, attempted by their own efforts according to their own fleshly unregenerate nature to achieve salvation. I mean, Paul tells us in Romans 10, Paul tells us here in Galatians 3, that the Jews were not using the law of God according to the purpose God intended. The intention of God's laws were to point us to the need of a Savior, not to save ourselves. And Paul tells us in Romans 1 that we suppress that truth and unrighteousness, and we're constantly trying to make a way to, for us to perceive ourselves as righteous enough for God to say you're okay. And we see this, do we not, in all the false religions of the world. There's something we can do to achieve righteousness. And the Bible calls this foolishness. It's the, it's the elementary principles of the world. It's childish. It's foolishness. It's not wisdom. We were enslaved to that. Just like a child under guardians. This is bondage to sin. When we're seeking to gain a righteousness of our own, a self-righteousness, this is, this is absolute bondage to sin. Because we're thinking that what we do, which is what? Sin is somehow going to obtain righteousness, but really all it's doing is stockpiling more unrighteousness upon ourselves. And so the problem, as we've already discussed, was that the Jews began to look upon law observance as the way that salvation could be achieved. Romans 10. Galatians 3. Now we have to remember that the law is holy and good. Isn't that? Paul made that clear. The law, it, well, is, is the law unholy? Is it evil? No, the law is holy and good. What's the problem? The problem's not the law. The problem is the flesh. There's no power in the flesh to keep the law. And there's no law that empowers you to be able to keep it. Which is why the promised spirit has to come. Which is why Jesus had to come and keep that covenant for us. I'll say more about that in a moment. But the problem is not the law, but the weakness, the impotence, and the sinfulness of the flesh, of our fallen nature, of this outer body that's wasting away day by day. Additionally, we see um, that the, the Jewish religious leaders over the centuries began to add, to their, add their own rules and regulations over 500 We've talked about that before, over 500 additional laws in order to help someone keep the real laws, and yet those laws started becoming more important to them than God's law, right? And that's why Jesus said, oh yeah, you, you heap up traditions of men over the law of God. And so this idea of, of keeping the law for salvation enslaved them to the bondage of sin. 
The same was true with respect to the religions and duties by which the worshipers of pagan deities sought to achieve redemption, as I've already alluded to. By all such means, whether Jewish or non-Jewish, Gentile, pagan, people are putting themselves in bondage under sin. You're keeping yourself under the bondage of sin when you seek to obtain a righteousness on your own. And while doing so, we claim to be wise. You, you see the, the foolishness of that, that the Bible teaches us? The foolishness of, of it is that you're going deeper into transgressions and you're claiming to be wise, but actually your path is foolishness. We, we actually increase our debtedness, our indebtedness to the justice of God when we seek to obtain a salvation on our own. But God has offered rescue. Look at verse um, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There's so much to say here, but I'm, I'm going to try to be precise. The, the eternal Son of God, at the right time, the Father sent him to incarnate. To be born of a woman. The incarnation occurred precisely when God the Father ordained that it occur. Now, we can, we can sit here and try to think of, well, why was that the best time? And, and I don't think we would do justice to that list. I think only God could give us an exhaustive list of why this was the fullness of time. But we do know this, that everything, everything that had occurred up until the moment of the incarnation was preparing the world for the arrival of the promised seed of the woman. The Bible, the New Testament explicitly teaches us that. That, that the, the entire Old Testament was preparation for the coming of the Messiah, for the reception of the Messiah, for reception of the seed of the woman promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. It was preparing the world for the arrival of the promised seed of the woman who would bring blessings to the world. Because who was Eve the mother of? All. Right? Which is why Luke takes the genealogy all the way back to Adam. He's not just the Savior of the Jews. He's Savior of the world. And he's bringing blessings in his new covenant to the world. To the world. He's bringing blessings to the world in the form of a new covenant and in the new covenant. And in that new covenant alone are the blessings received. That's the New Testament. 
An entrance into the new covenant is made effectual by the Holy Spirit in regeneration. And it is expressed. How do we know someone's been regenerated? What, what, how do they express that? How, does that? how does that come up? How, does that, how is that expressed through that person? Repentance and faith. And that faith provided by the Holy Spirit in regeneration is what justifies us or declares us blameless before God. The coming of Christ with his new covenant and faith in him. And here, here's, here's the beauty of this. The coming of Christ with his new covenant and his new covenant, which would bring the blessings of the new covenant and the federal head of that covenant to the nations is exactly, precisely, and exclusively what delivers us from the bondage of sin. There's no other deliverance from the bondage of sin. And when Jesus spoke this to the religious leaders, they wanted to pick up stones and stone them. We've never been slaves they knew what he was talking about because they knew they had been. Historically, and according to the flesh, they had been enslaved by other nations. But the new covenant that Jesus brings that comes with the promised seed is exactly, precisely, and exclusively what delivers us from the bondage of sin. And it is the only thing that delivers us from the bondage of sin. Outside of that new covenant that Jesus brings, you are still in the bondage of sin and you are still in Adam. Listen to what Peter says regarding the deliverance we have in, in Christ. I, I read this passage at the beginning of the service. Peter says in verse 8 of Acts 15, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, why are we sitting here thinking for one second of putting them back in bondage? This is the, this is the covenant that brings blessings, and the blessing is, one of the blessings is, is that we're no longer under the bondage of sin. Why would we put that yoke back on them and start giving them things that they have to keep ceremonially in order to be in covenant with God? You're in covenant, Peter says in the very next verse, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. Why? How? By faith. By faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Christ has come with a new covenant that blesses us and releases us, frees us from the bondage of sin. So Paul is illustrating this, that just as an immature child is governed by rules and regulations, so also before the dawning of the light of the gospel, we were in bondage to the elementary principles of the world. Before we came to Christ, 
We were under regulations. We were, we were looking for some system, some world system, some world ideology, some belief system that would make me comfortable, if you will, in my own self-righteousness. It's foolishness. It's not wisdom. But when Christ came and we put our faith in him, guess what? We were freed from those regulations. We have freedom and liberty in Christ that we've never had before. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness in creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How beautiful that is. We're living in darkness, groping our way, somehow trying to make ourselves feel like we're okay with God by suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness. And God comes along with the preaching of the gospel and says, live, and light shines upon you, and you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and you can't help but cling to him because of the work of the Holy Spirit. How beautiful is that new covenant? All because of what Paul says here. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, to redeem those who were groping in the dark, seeking to find a self-righteousness of their own, to free you from such a system that will only lead you to hell. to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The nature and work of Christ, born of a woman. I think there's, there's maybe dual meaning here. Obviously, he's born of just the woman, right? The virgin birth. So that he did not take on the sin nature. But also, I believe that Paul, because of chapter 3, is also taking us back to Genesis 3.15. This, this is the promised seed of the woman. This is the promised seed of Eve. God keeps his promises. 1,000 days is like a day to God. It doesn't matter the length of time. God will always keep his promises, always. He always keeps his promises. He cannot tell a lie. Christ took upon himself the nature of those who he would redeem in order to be our representative, in order to represent us. He had to take on our nature. Born under the law, he kept the law perfectly. Hebrews tells us he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. Hallelujah. So that we might be adopted into the covenant that Christ brings, that we enter by faith. And we leave, in this adoption, we leave the domain of darkness. We're delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And, and we are adopted to joy. Amen? 
I mean, the suffering that we go through is real, and there are seasons of mourning and seasons of difficulty and seasons of tears. It's not as if somehow what we go through in this life is some fake illusion. It's not. It's real. It's just as real as the suffering that Christ endured. Not to the extent, but we suffer. And there are seasons in which we, we're down, we're, we're mourning, we're tearful. But listen, dear Christian, it never removes the foundation of joy that we have in Jesus. Ever. It's an eternal joy. Because you are sons, because you've been adopted, Paul says in verse 6, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Right? Abba, Father. Because we are sons, God the Father having adopted us as sons, he sends his spirit into our hearts. We are the elect of God, and so we receive the Holy Spirit. We receive the spirit and therefore, we become conscious of our sonship. And when we become conscious of our sonship, we cry out, Abba, Father. There's no other way to look. Abba, Father. My only hope, my only source of joy, my only source of satisfaction, my only source of true, lasting pleasure our only source of hope, eternal life, reconciliation, redemption, deliverance. Abba, Father, you are my all in all. And when we cry this out, it's, it's a joyful recognition of who God now is to us. Amen? It's a, a sweet response to the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that we respond out, Abba, Father, you're my daddy. And I can now come into the throne room of grace anytime I want because I'm your child, you've adopted me. You're my daddy. The love that we now have for him because we're allowed to perceive as much as we can understand his love for us which surpasses all knowledge. We can't fully comprehend the love of God. But what we can comprehend, is it not sweet and stirs our heart to love and joy in him? Overwhelming gratitude when we cry out, Abba, Father, this gratitude that we have. We were groping in the dark, searching foolish ways, trusting foolishness, and God delivered us from that darkness so we no longer have to grope in the dark. We can see things in the light of Jesus Christ. And there is a filial trust in that cry. Though they slay me, I will trust in you. Though they put me in the fiery furnace, I will trust in you that you'll be with me. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If you are not in Christ, dear friends, then you are in bondage. This is the message of the gospel. 
It's a message that was despised by the religious leaders of Jesus' day. It's in absolute opposition to the flesh. It's a stumbling block, Paul says, to the Jew, and it's foolishness to the Gentile, the non-Jew. But in Christ, we are no longer a slave to sin. We are no longer a debtor to the law. Amen? We are adopted into the family of God and made sons and daughters unto God. In Christ, we have redemption from our debt to the justice of God. In Christ, we have forgiveness of all our sins, past, present, future. We have a reconciled relationship with God. We have the covenant between God and man perfectly kept for us by Jesus, which is why you can't fall out of covenant with God. You can't fall out of the new covenant. You want to know why? Because Jesus kept it for you. Praise the Lord that God, and I've said this before, that God didn't just clean our plates and go, all right, have a good time. We'd be right back in trouble one second later. But Jesus says, come, enter covenant with me. I've kept it for you. You can never fall out of this covenant. We have the Holy Spirit living within us and sealing us for our inheritance. And that all that is entailed in the promised salvation of God. But I want us to think of one more thing, and it will lead us into the Lord's Supper. Because when Paul says we are more than heirs, or we are heirs of the promise, we're heirs with Christ, we're heirs through God, a lot of times I think our mind stops at maybe justification. Or a lot of times our mind stops um, at maybe uh, the trumpet blowing, we, we receive a, a new body that can inherit immortality, right? We a lot of times I think our mind stops and doesn't think of the fullness of what we are heirs of. I alluded to it a little earlier, but here's the thing. We are heirs of a promised heavenly kingdom. One that we are already in because of our union with Christ. Listen, when we think of the death or the life, the perfect life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We think of our union with him, right? That's what baptism symbolizes, our union with him. Just like Christ died, we died with him. Just like he rose, we rose with him. And guess what? Just like he ascended, we will one day ascend to him and with him, and we will live forever in the kingdom that he promises. We're a royal nation, right? A holy nation, a royal priesthood. We're sons and daughters of the king, which means there's a kingdom. We have been delivered. That's what Paul says, isn't it? We've been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. We've been delivered, past tense, if you're in Christ. We are in the kingdom of Christ and it's manifested on earth by the church on earth. 
The local church is a local assembly of the people of the kingdom of Christ. And I want to point this out to you a little more specifically, and then we'll transition to the Lord's Supper. In, in Luke twenty two twenty nine, I just want to read one verse to you, but I want to set the context. Here, here the disciples are with Jesus. They're, they're, they're having the Lord's Supper here. They're observing the Passover. It's going to be the last one. Jesus is about to walk to the cross. And they're having this debate about who's, who's the greatest, right? I mean, here they are. They're in the company of the Lord, and they're having the, hey, who's the greatest, man? Who's the greatest? Me? You? And listen to this, what Jesus says. He's informing them here this, that he's, he's establishing the new covenant in his blood. And Jesus says to them in Luke twenty two twenty nine, 29, he says, and I assign to you, and I, I just want to point something out. This, this, the Greek word here for assign is the same word that's used for covenant. And when you go back to the Old Testament and you find the, the word in Hebrew beret for, old, for covenant, in the Septuagint, it's, it's this word. And in the New Testament, it's, it's this word. Diatithomai. And he says, and, and I covenant to you. Jesus is making an oath here. And I covenant to you as my father, same word, same root word here, I, I, as my father covenanted to me, and then he says, a kingdom. How beautiful is that? I'm, I'm, I'm taking an oath that you're going to be part of my kingdom. My, my father promised me a kingdom, and you're going to be in it. And you're going to be citizens of my kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. And if you're mine, you're in it. And you, you can be assured that I do not lie. And that I promise you this kingdom. And so this is what we celebrate. We're heirs of that. The, the justification, the sanctification, the glorification, that's not the end. It's the means for us to be in the kingdom and enjoy the presence of God forevermore. Amen? How beautiful is that? It's not the end. And the reason why I bring this out is because a lot of times we, we, we fall short. We become short-sighted when we think about being heirs of what? Well, justification, sanctification, glorification. But those are means to an end. And the end is the presence of God in the kingdom of his son. So when we come to the Lord's Supper... We're not just remembering what Jesus did on the cross. We're remembering what he's doing now. He's preparing a place for us. And so we take the Lord's Supper. Really, what we're crying out within ourselves is this. Lord, come, Lord Jesus. Oh, I pray that this will be the last time that I have to participate with a token of you when I really want to be in your presence. I want to be in your physical presence, and I want to see you, not a token of you. Come, Lord Jesus. That's what, we, that's what we say. That's what we cry out in our heart when we take the Lord's Supper. And when we, listen, this is a foretaste of the great wedding feast that we're going to participate with and in with Jesus Christ.
Amen? Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll have the Lord's Supper. Lord, we, we cry out to you, Abba, Father. You are our daddy who intimately, graciously, painstakingly loves us, nurtures us, shepherds us, heals us, applies balm to us, carries us, ministers to us, feeds us, shepherds us, sanctifies us. Lord, you are so good. You are our King, Lord, Shepherd, Savior, Redeemer. All these blessings that we have in Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the new covenant. Because the new covenant in Jesus is our only hope. And so we thank you, Lord, for the work of the Holy Spirit in our life to affect the new covenant in our hearts, to take out that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, to write your law on that new heart of flesh, to make us know you, to make us walk in your ways. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. And we we, we are about to partake of the Lord's Supper in which we cry out, come, Lord Jesus. We want to be with you forevermore. And we long for it. And Lord, forgive us for not longing for it more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.